Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. Here I'm not. There we go. And one of the things, I think this is true of everybody, so I think this is true if you uh, have faith. I think this is also true even if you feel like you're losing faith or you lost faith a while ago. If you did have faith, I think you would um, maybe describe it this way, where you've met people that just seem like, okay, even if I don't have it, if I did have faith, it seems like their faith, what they believe is unshakable. Like it is unshakable confidence in a God maybe I don't believe in. And if you are a Jesus follower, chances are you've met somebody, whether it's from a distance, but hopefully up close, where you look at their life, you look at how they live and you think, they have what I would describe as unshakable kind of confidence and faith and trust in God. And if you ever get a chance to be up close to those people, it's one of the great privileges. Like for me, I grew up with it. My parents were these individuals and they have so many stories, whether it was my dad leaving a great job with three kids and moving across country because they felt like that's what God was leading them to do and began to plant churches and didn't, I mean, there was so many unknowns and there was so much risk, but there was just this faith that God had called them and God was going to equip them or watching my parents walk through the loss of my brother. And again, they weren't naive. They weren't like disconnected from reality, but I watched them walk through that as a high school student. And it just felt like their faith was unshakable. Like their confidence in God, despite walking through hell was unshaken. And I, right now to bring it up to present day, I have a friend of mine who's battling stage four cancer, just a little bit younger than I am. And he's been battling about a year and a half and every once in a while we'll talk. And when I talk to him, you know, you want to try to do something to encourage him, uh, even though less is more. So I, I try not to do a, do a whole lot. But every time I talk to him, I'm trying to encourage him and I walk away and every single time. This friend of mine with stage four cancer with all of these unknowns ends up encouraging me. And I walk away and I'm blown away by his confidence and his faith in God that is, I'm telling you, again, he's not disconnected from reality. He gets everything that's going on, but it is unshakable. There's just something about it. And what you will find is like a thread through people like that, who live like that, who respond like that is, they seem to just recognize at a level that a lot of people don't recognize that this moment is not all there is, that what they're walking through right now is not all there is, that this life is not all there is, and that somehow through everyday ordinary life and through suffering and through disappointment, they're able to maintain this confidence that God's with them and that God's for them and that God's working on their behalf and that God will even intervene. And what I find kind of most interesting that I think is important for us to, to just mention is it's not amazing obedience that they have. In fact, I've never met a person where they like changed my life and blew me away because I'm like, you are just amazingly obedient. The thing that's unique about them is amazing faith. Like this thing that informs their responses, informs their decisions and how they live their life. And like, it just, it just changes you. And so here's the question I think that I want us to ask all throughout this series that I think all of us should ask, even if you're not sure about where you're at in terms of faith. How does that happen? Like, where does that come from? 
How, how do you get that? How do we get that? Because so often I think there is this misnomer that that is somehow a saved select few and that God has specifically chosen them and they're at some other level that we can't get to. And yet the reality of the New Testament is something completely different that should lead you to this question. Like you're no different. You're not in some unique category. They're not in some unique category. How do you get that? How does that happen? So this series is really for three people. It's those who maybe you feel like you've lost faith and there's more um, that are sitting near you than you would even recognize if you're listening via radio or watching somewhere, those who lost faith, or maybe you're in the category right now where you feel like you're losing faith, or you're looking for how do I strengthen and grow in my faith? And what I'm hoping is for some of you, this series will actually explain kind of what has happened around the issue or the area of your faith. For others of you, I think it might be the catalyst for what God wants to do to grow and strengthen your faith. So whether you're looking to rediscover, reclaim, re-strengthen your faith, like this series is for you. Now, to start it, there is two um, places in the New Testament where um, you look at Jesus and he was amazed. Like you, and you can look this up for yourself, but there was two times that Jesus was amazed by somebody else. And if you think about Jesus, like it's, he's a tough guy to impress. Like with his resume, you're not gonna amaze Jesus easy. It's like, well, I've turned water into wine at a dinner party. Um, you know, I walked on water one time. I've, you know, I took one lunch um, to go and I, you know, fed 5,000 people. I raised a dead person. Like, try to impress me. Like, it's a, it's a tall order. And yet, there's two times in the New Testament where Jesus was awed, Jesus was moved, Jesus was really inspired and amazed by somebody else. The first time is when Jesus was approached by this Roman centurion, this guy who led a large group of people, was basically a boss, you know, chain of command. And this Roman centurion came to Jesus and said, hey, will you heal my servant? This is a guy I care about, um, and I know that you can do something about it. And so Jesus offers to this guy, like, yeah, you show me, I mean, I'm Jesus, I could find the directions, but you, you show me where it's at. I'll go with you back to your house and I'll heal this guy. And the Roman centurion turns to Jesus. It's not gonna be, mean a lot to us, but it was a big deal. Turns to Jesus and says, no, no, we don't need to do any of that because I've, I've kind of I've kinda have a clue about you and I know how this works and you don't even need to go with me to my house. And here's how the centurion replied to Jesus in Matthew 8, 9. For I myself, the centurion's talking, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And basically, he's just saying, listen, People obey me because of who I represent. And I've got authority and I've got leverage and I lead a bunch of people and I'm the boss, I am the Roman centurion guy and they do what I say because of who I represent. And Jesus, I've been watching you. And I've, I've kind of investigated you just a long, long enough to know that you represent something bigger than just you or just some human being. You represent some kind of authority, some kind of power that is way bigger than me and way bigger than I can even imagine. So if you want to heal my servant, you can just do what I do and command it and it's gonna happen. In fact, you don't even need to go to my house. You, I just have watched you long enough to know you've got enough authority, you could just do it remote. And so listen, I've got authority and when I tell people what to do, they do it and I've followed you long enough to know you've got authority and whatever you say, it's done. In verse 10, this is so interesting. When Jesus heard this, he was what? He was amazed. And again, by what? 
I mean, this narrative comes right after Jesus healed a leper, and he wasn't amazed by any of that. I mean, Jesus did that stuff on a Tuesday. Healed lepers, raised the dead, and never do you find Jesus being amazed by any of those scenarios, and yet here he is with this Roman centurion. He's like, you don't even need to go to my house. You can heal this guy. You have authority under you, and Jesus turns to him, and he's amazed by the guy. And then Jesus tells us what he's amazed about in end of verse 10. Truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel, which... If you're a religious leader or person in Israel, this is an offensive statement. I've not found anyone else in Israel with such, what? Great faith. faith. Because as you say in the New Testament, as you follow Jesus, the thing that Jesus was amazed by was confident, bold, actively informed faith more than anything else. In fact, if you were to ask, okay, well, like, what is specifically is, is he like amazed by? He's amazed by the fact that this centurion, once he figured out a little bit about who Jesus was and he didn't have all his questions answered and he didn't know all the theology and uh, he hadn't memorized the Torah, but he knew just enough to know that this guy, Jesus, is distinct. He is unique. There is power. There is authority there. And the moment he recognized a little bit about who Jesus was and the power and the authority behind him, immediately the centurion is like, I'm all in. Like, I know that you've got something behind you that is bigger and beyond me. And so I'm going to trust you and I'm going to declare my faith and trust in you. And Jesus was amazed by this guy's active display of faith. Here's just a quick side note that's really important. And again, you can study this for yourself, which really I would hope you do about everything I say. But Jesus, look at the New Testament. Jesus was never amazed by somebody's knowledge or obedience, ever. Like Jesus never was like moved, you know, mouth wide open. Like I cannot believe how knowledgeable and obedient they are. Jesus never did that because here's the reality. Knowledge and obedience are a means to an end. They are not the end in themselves. Like one of the things with my kids at this age is I just, I'm trying to teach them, you know, heart, kindness. I want you to do things out of right motives, but we're also still at the phase where I just want them to obey me. And sometimes I'll just take the obedience and I don't care what's going on in their heart. You know what I'm talking about? Where they walk away, I'm like, I just want you to do it. And they're like, fine. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I don't care what you're saying in your mind as long as it doesn't come out loud. Right now, I just need to leverage obedience with my position to get you to do what I want you to do. Anybody, because you're acting like I'm the only one. You liars. (laughs) Like, no, sometimes you just need them to do it, all right? And I care about all the other stuff, but I just need obedience. But long-term, I want more than that because here's the reality. My kids can grow up and they could obey me and not love me. And they could obey me and not trust me. It is always a means to an end. This is some of why, you know, a few of you or many of you walked away from the church for a while because obedience in knowledge was prioritized above everything else. But obedience and knowledge did not necessarily lead to love and trust. I mean, you know Christians who are obedient and knowledgeable in terms of the, the kind of the Christian cultural standard, and yet they look nothing like Jesus. They're judgmental, they're arrogant, they're impossible to be around, they look nothing like Jesus, but they're obedient and they're knowledgeable. And so Jesus comes along to go, no, no, that is a means to an end. And if all you have is obedience and knowledge as the end goal, it's actually dangerous, to paraphrase Paul. It is a means to an end. And the means to an end is what Jesus is leading us toward, that I want you to have active faith that's actually lived out. Obedience isn't wrong. In fact, 
like that ultimately based on trust, that's where you wanna get knowledge is not wrong. Knowing who God is, is the basis for actually following him. But at the end of the day, Jesus is going, the thing that captures my attention is all of that being lived out through active, bold, courageous, I'm not even sure what you're doing, God, but in spite of faith, I'm gonna trust you anyway. And then the second incident was the complete opposite. Jesus was in his hometown. This is the second time you see that Jesus was amazed. And he's doing miracles and he's healing people. And for a while, he was a rock star. They rolled out the red carpet. Everybody loved it. They're like, man, you know, hometown guys made good. I mean, this is incredible. And then all of a sudden, there's this tipping point where they begin to get jealous. And they're like, okay, I mean, the miracles were cool for a while, but who does this guy think he is? Like, who does this dude think he is? We grew up with him. And I know like some of these tricks are amazing, but I mean, 2000 years later, David Blaine's gonna do some of this stuff. Like what makes him think he's like Messiah, savior of the world? And so in Mark, it records what all those in his hometown begin to say about him. Isn't he just a carpenter? Like we grew up with this guy. And again, this is just a side note. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Jesus spent most of his life as a carpenter None of the things that he made survived the first century. We have no idea what Jesus made. We have no idea if any of those chairs, you could even sit on them. He could have been the equivalent of a Judean Ikea furniture maker. We have no idea what Jesus did. None of his stuff survived. We don't even know if he was good at it. So like we watched this guy until 30 years old, you know, woodworking in a shop. None of his stuff is even that good. He's a carpenter. Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't he the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? He's just a dude. Aren't his sisters here with us? Like, he's not, I don't think he's that special. Yeah, he's done a few miracles, but you can pull that off. But come on, son of God, Messiah, we grew up with him. And just side note, sometimes familiarity lacks clarity. That the closer you get to some, something, the harder it is to recognize its significance. That the, and this applies to a lot of areas of life. That the closer you get to something, the easier it is to miss. I mean, here's Jesus right in front of them, but they were so familiar with him and what they thought they knew about him that they missed him. And Jesus says to this group from his hometown in verse six that he was what? Amazed by their lack of faith. Jesus is amazed by two things. Great faith lack of faith. Great confidence in God, no confidence in God. Great trust in God, no trust in God. And Jesus' agenda, no surprise for first century followers, 21st century followers is at some point, I wanna lead you to the place more than anything else. Not obedience, first and foremost, not any of those other things that we tend to stack up, honestly, because they're easier. This is much more difficult. I wanna lead your life eventually to a place where you have active, bold, confident, in spite of faith in God. That's my agenda, Jesus would say, and that's my goal for your life. Now, here's where this kind of goes off the rails, though, for us, and it's why for some of you have struggled with this so much, and it's been one of the obstacles to your faith growing, because somebody handed you a version of faith that isn't taught in the New Testament. And so you've tried everything you could to make that version of faith match with everyday, ordinary life, and it just hasn't added up, because here's what Jesus teaches all throughout the New Testament, that faith, unlike hope and optimism, has to have an object, the faith that Jesus teaches. Unlike hope and optimism, faith has to have an object. Faith always has to have an object. Here's the kind of the, the equivalent I would give you. If you got on a jet or a plane or whatever and you get ready to take off, you have hope and optimism that you're gonna arrive safely. 
and it's not unfounded, but your faith is not in your hope and in your optimism. Your faith is anchored to like the mechanical integrity of the plane, the judgment of the pilot, hopefully they haven't been drinking. I mean, all of the things that go into it, that's the object of your faith, but your faith is not in hope and optimism. And this is so important, so don't let me lose you. The object of faith is not a particular outcome. Faith is not all, everything's gonna work out right. In fact, that's hope and that's optimism. And for some of you, you actually, for a period, maybe walked away from faith or it's where you are right now because you prayed prayers and you believed in promises that if you just believe it, if you just muster up enough faith, if you just have enough courage, if you just believe big enough that God can do it and God can heal and God can come through and God can change it, then God is obligated to do it. And you had all the faith in the world. You prayed all of the prayers in the world and God didn't do it and your faith came tumbling down. But your faith came tumbling down over promises that Jesus never made. The object of your faith is not an outcome. And Jesus never promised, if you just muster up enough faith, it'll be pain-free, problem-free, and God will come through and do whatever you ask him to do as long as you're obedient, as long as you're faithful. See, the only problem with that theology is Jesus and every one of his followers. Because they had incredible faith and none of them ended their life pain-free, problem-free with everything worked at, working out. The object of our faith is not an outcome. That's, faith, that's hope, that's optimism. Jesus was not amazed by faith and optimism. He was amazed by the faith and the confidence in the centurion over who God was. And the whole point of Jesus' ministry is this, over and over again, Jesus established himself as the object of faith. Jesus established himself as the epicenter of faith. It's why over and over again, Jesus invited his followers. I want you to believe in me. I want you to trust in me, which is a big statement. And one of Jesus' longest, most disturbing messages. And I love when Jesus would give these really disturbing, like heavy, hey, you know, a little while I'm gonna, you know, be out of here and it's gonna end badly for you. And then he gets to the end of this long, drawn out, disturbing combo. And then he says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. And they're like, that's exactly what our hearts are gonna be right now. Like, you, did you not listen to your own message? Do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he says this, you believe in God. And what's really interesting in the Greek, and it's not often um, helpful for me to bring up Greek, but in this case it is. In the original Greek, there was no word for trust in. And so this is the first time it shows up where they take the Greek word for believe and then add the preposition en and basically created this original Greek word of had the idea of trust in. And so this is where the original trans, translation actually is more accurate where it literally means the Greek word. If you trust in God, I want you to trust also in me. Basically he's going, listen, if you believe that there's a God, if, if you believe in, you know, if there's a faith and that God orchestrated this whole thing, Jesus shows up to go, I want you to believe in me like you believe God. I want you to trust me the way that you trust God. Uh, Jesus would say, I wanna become the object of your faith because I came to show you what God is like. If you wanna know how God thinks, I want you to watch me. If you wanna know how God responds, I want you to watch me. If you wanna know how God thinks about life and your priorities and how you should treat them and how you should respond and how you should view culture, I want you to look at me because I came to show you and to demonstrate for you what God is like, God in a body, God in human flesh, so you could know how to relate to God. You could know how God thinks and feels about you because you have a ton of assumptions about God. 
And they had a ton of assumptions about God. And just to be honest, most of their assumptions were wrong. In fact, one of the things that Jesus makes clear when he shows up in the first century is that he came to correct their incorrect assumptions about who God was and about how God, respond, God responds. And he was so clear, Jesus was, that it was offensive. In fact, I don't think that that's changed 2,000 years later, that Jesus was so clear that it is offensive and it's disturbing. I mean, all Jesus' whole talk about, hey, I want you to love your enemy. And 2,000 years later, I mean, we can talk about that, you know, in terms of intellectual assent, but like, who does that? I want you to not go after getting yours and your liberties and your rights. I want you to willfully lay them down for the sake of somebody else. Who does that? That was the epicenter of Jesus' message. I want you to come on planet Earth and I want you to serve other people rather than trying to figure out how to be served. I want you to pray for people who persecute you. I mean, I'm telling you, Jesus' message was so clear, it was offensive. This is what God is like. In fact, just kind of a cultural connection. If you look at anything embarrassing or hateful or disturbing that is done specifically in Western culture under the banner of Christianity, do a case study. It almost always involves an Old Testament verse out of context, or they'll sprinkle in a little Jesus out of context. But it is completely out of context to justify whether it's hate, whether it's self-righteousness, whether it's leveraging God for political power, because literally they have to ignore Jesus' words in order to justify that behavior because Jesus was so clear, it was terrifying. It's why he said over and over again, if you wanna know what God is like, watch me. If you wanna know how God responds, watch me. If you wanna know what God thinks, I want you to watch me. I mean, there's this powerful illustration when Jesus is at the banks of the Jordan River with John and they're arguing about who's gonna baptize who and finally John gives in. He's like, I'll baptize you. And he baptizes Jesus. And there's this amazing moment where this voice comes from heaven, which is weird, but I believe it was the voice of God the Father and he says over Jesus after that baptism moment, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased And the translation of that moment was God the Father going, if you want to know what I'm like, what God is like, I want you to watch my boy. If you wanna know how I see the world, watch what my boy does. If you wanna know how I see human beings, watch him. If you wanna know how I respond, watch him. If you wanna know what God the Father is like, all of it is going to be wrapped up in Jesus. It's why You should read through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You should just ask this question. What do I learn about God from Jesus? What do I learn about God from Jesus? In fact, for some of you who would say, I haven't abandoned faith. In fact, I'm a follower of Jesus. And yet there has been so much in terms of cultural and denomination and what you grew up with and some multi-generational stuff that has been mixed in that I think every year, man, you should roll back through the gospels and you should ask that question again. What do I learn about God from Jesus? Because over time, you can create a Jesus in your cultural image. What do I learn about? I mean, this was all over the New Testament. One time Jesus approaches this guy who's born blind and you can, I mean, just to picture how offensive this was, the guy's right there, okay? And he, he was blind, but he could hear. And his disciples turn to Jesus and go, hey, this guy, hey, what's up, buddy? Usually they knew their name. They would be out in the same place begging all the time. So they probably knew this guy by name. They're like, hey, Frank over here. Did this, we did a quick question for you. Did he sin or his parents? 
We're just wondering. Because everybody understands that it's quid pro quo, pro quo with God, that whatever you've done, it's gonna come back to you. And so if you're struggling, if things aren't going well, if you're suffering, if things are not going great, then obviously you sin or somebody you know sin and God's getting you back. So Jesus, just a quick question, Frank, excuse for a second. Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? You don't know God and you don't know what God is like and you have everything wrong, which is why I'm here to reveal to you what God is like in the form of Jesus. Another time, Jesus was teaching this whole talk, his definitive talk on loving your neighbor. And as he's talking about loving your neighbor, they turned him, okay, Jesus, we got one more question. Just follow up to this. That's a great message about loving your neighbor, and we agree. But which of the Judeans are our neighbors, just to clarify? Because obviously, like, there are categories, right? And I'm not sure that they're in the category of neighbor, but they probably, so we just want to know we'll love our neighbor. But who exactly should we consider our neighbor? And Jesus turns to them, and he basically makes this point. That unlike most of us, God doesn't view favorites. And then Jesus would redefine the term neighbor that would honestly create a multi-generational thread that changed culture, whether you realize it or not, and he would define neighbor as anybody who has a need that you can meet. And he would turn to them and say, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, which we kind of laugh at. But when Jesus said this, they're like, yeah, yeah, we've literally grown up with that. It was a cultural idiom where they just, everybody believed, yeah, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's the way God works. Besides, Jesus, what's the alternative? And Jesus turns to them and says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those. Actively move in the direction, pray for those who persecute you. And then you may be children of your father, in heaven. Or to quote Paul, that while you were at your worst, writing to the Corinthian church, while you were in the midst of your dysfunction, not when you decided to get out of it, God looked in future history and while you were at your worst, Christ died for you. And now if you want to be like God, your father, you have to love your enemies the way that he did. And it was a complete cultural paradigm shift where Jesus is going, the whole reason that I showed up is so that you could see, that you could accept, and you could view me as the object of all of your faith. And they're thinking, okay, so what you're saying is, I mean, God likes everybody. And again, in their culture, it was Jew, and it was Gentile, and it was Greek, and it was Samaritan, and it was women and children who couldn't even come into the temple. And Jesus gives them proof, and he says in verse 45, he causes his son to rise on the evil. And he would have been to like, who's in the evil category for you? Who's characterized as evil? Who's the, I can't believe them, don't want anything to do with them, they're a threat to everything that I believe hold to. Who's in, Jesus is like, who's in the evil category? The son that I created rises and sets on the evil and the good, and this was so uncomfortable for them because in this moment, it's the theological term is common grace. God's going, God's grace is extended to everyone. And you've had God all wrong. And it's why I'm inviting you to trust God as he is. 
And it's no more difficult in 21st century, it was in first century, where God is saying again to us, I want you to trust me as I am. It's why, if you're trying to figure out God or refigure out God, you shouldn't start in Genesis, you should start with Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that came to articulate, to clarify, and to contextualize everything to go. Everything pointed to me, and if you want to know what God's like, it is found and it's wrapped up in the redemptive story of Jesus. Paul would say it this way. Paul came along, and he understood this probably better than anyone because he was at the epicenter of the transition where he was a part of ancient Jewish religion, Judaism, and pagan religion. And then he was a part of the transition to the Jesus movement and this new way when Jesus showed up on planet Earth. So he understood it better than anybody. And he sits down and he writes and he articulates kind of the common thread and summarizes all the traditions of world religions. And he says, listen, I I was a part of ancient Judaism. I was a part of pagan religions. Now I'm a part of the Jesus movement. Let me summarize for you all of the traditions of world religions and what it all points to in Colossians 2.17 when he says this. These are what? Let's try that again. These are what? A shadow of the things so important that were to come. And you can learn a lot about a thing from a shadow but you can't learn everything. But when the shadow caster appears, the shadow becomes less significant. Not because it was incorrect, but because it was incomplete. And for generations, They had the Torah, they had the Old Testament. Others were looking to pagan religions. How do we find God in the universe? And all of it was a shadow. And specifically, the Torah and the Old Testament pointed to the fact that eventually God's gonna do something. But they could only learn so much from the shadow. But when the shadow caster appeared, it changed everything. And suddenly, what they waited for now became reality. And so he says, the shadow of the things that were to come in reality, however, are now found in Christ. That the thing that you have waited for, the person that you have waited for to clarify, to contextualize, to show you the way, to give you the clues about what God is like and how God thinks and how God responds, it is all found in Jesus. And like you, they grew up trying to piece God together and try to figure out who God was and take some of the Torah and the religion and uh, for us, the denominations and the multi-generational stuff that we grew up with. And so Jesus shows up to go, okay, there's a ton that I need to explain to you. And there is a ton that you need to relearn, but here's what you need to know to summarize that Jesus would say, I am the perfect representation of God the Father. And if you want to know God the Father, you need to get to know me. Or basically Jesus would say it this way, that the shadow, everything that had come before, everything that pointed to God and ultimately to Jesus, it was a sign that pointed to me so I could point to my heavenly Father not so that you could know more about God, so that you could have a relationship with God. This is why it shouldn't surprise us, for some of you, this is a new way of looking at the scriptures, that Jesus over and over again, more than anything else, emphasized not obedience, and obedience is part of the deal, but that's secondary, it's an outflow. Jesus emphasized over and over and over again, the place that I wanna lead you is toward active, bold, courageous, in spite of, I'm going to trust God anyway kind of faith. Because here, you know this already, what is the currency of any healthy relationship? 
What is the currency of any healthy relationship? A marriage relationship, significant other, a kid, a close relationship with somebody you really value. Like what is the currency of any healthy relationship? The currency of any healthy relationship is trust. Your relationships are only as good as your trust. That's why with our kids, and we got this from a mentor years ago, but we hung on to it and we've done this from the very first day really we started parenting or when they could understand stuff. But we just have two rules in our house, honor your mama and don't tell a lie, that's it. And I mean, there's some other things like don't beat the crap out of your brother. But there's secondary rules. The rules, like if you get these rules, they're what you call keystone habits or catalytic rules where everything else kind of falls in line. So there's a lot of stuff I let go. The things I don't let go are you have to honor your mommy and you cannot tell a lie. And the second rule is such a big deal because the one thing we wanna teach our kids is that the epicenter of every great relationship is trust. And if I can't trust you, we have fractured relationship. I can deal with anything else, all your nonsense, stupid decision you made, can't believe you did that, why'd you hit him again? We can work through and deal with all of that. But when you breach trust, you don't have a relationship anymore. And so all throughout the New Testament is why Jesus talks to us over and over again about this is not a religion. It is a relationship with a person and that relationship is only as good as the trust in the relationship. So it's not obedience, it's not fear. Those things do not lead to love. Those things do not lead to trust. You can obey all day long and not love somebody. You can obey all day long and not trust somebody. The epicenter of where God wants to get us is a trust relationship. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What is the thing that was fractured and broke in the Garden of Eden? What sent everything off the rails and it all hit the fan? Trust was broken. Trust was fractured. There was now a divide in the relationship that had to be put back together. And so Jesus shows up in the first century and he says to his followers, now I've come to shed light on the shadow and to put together the pieces of who God is and what God is like. And I want to be the object of your faith and your trust. And when I go, cause I'm about to peace out very, very soon, I'm gonna leave you the Holy Spirit. But just so you know, when I peace out, you're gonna know who God is. You're gonna know what he's like and you are going to know that you will be able to trust me. Because after all, God so loved the world that he wanted you to know what he was like. And so God came in human flesh to authenticate and to demonstrate, this is how God thinks. This is how God feels. This is how God loves. This is what it means to have a relationship with God the Father because God revealed himself through Jesus. And I don't need to say it, but you know this. It's very difficult to have a relationship with a shadow. That's what every world religion is. It's a shadow that always leaves you insecure about where you stand with God. And so Jesus shows up to go, that's why I'm inviting you to trust me. And when you trust me, you enter a relationship with God the Father. And what you'll discover over time, if you ever begin to follow Jesus through the gospels, through your life, through people that you meet with unshakable faith, God is not honored by most of the things that we construct in evangelical Western culture. God is most honored because this is more difficult to attain by our living, active, death-defying, in spite of trust in him. And come on, that's the definition of relationship. 
And that's, and this is what we're gonna discover the next four weeks, that is actually the measure of spiritual maturity. In fact, in some cases, and again, I'm not lessening knowledge or obedience, but in some cases, you can have a lot less knowledge and obedience than somebody else. But if you're able to take what you do have and turn that into faith lived out, active, in spite of, I'm gonna trust God anyway, God is amazed by that kind of faith. By the kind of faith where you get up every day with somebody with a relationship hanging on by a thread, a job you don't like, market share that is down and to the left, a relationship that's strained with your kid, uh, just an area where you're struggling emotionally, you don't know how you're gonna get through Wednesday and you get up every single day and you do what anybody would do that has a relationship hanging on by a thread or doesn't wanna go to work on Tuesday or not sure how to create a relationship with your adult kid and you do what anybody who would do in those circumstances who is absolutely confident that God was with you anyway. You get up and whatever that situation is and wherever there's the dots are not connecting and you have questions and God, why haven't you answered that prayer? And yet you keep going and you keep entering in and you keep getting up and you keep praying and you keep doing what anybody would do in those circumstances who was absolutely confident that God was with them. And I'm telling you, if you've ever met those people, that's all inspiring. That moves you. When you watch people who live their lives counterculture to go, I'm not gonna give in to the rest of this nonsense. I'm gonna love people who don't love me back. I'm gonna forgive people who don't deserve my forgiveness. I'm gonna walk into environments where it doesn't feel like I'm making a difference and I'm gonna recognize that God's with me, God's for me, God's intervening on my behalf. You sit down with my friends who, I mean, is mid-30s, struggling with stage four cancer, and you are moved not by his obedience, you are moved by his faith and his confidence in God. And if, and if you ever have the privilege to get up close to that, if you ever have the privilege to see that kind of faith, you are going to want that kind of faith. If you ever get a chance to see that kind of life, just mark it down, you will want that kind of life. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. And so over the next couple of weeks, here's what we're going to talk about. How do you make room to grow, to strengthen, to recapture that kind of faith? And I say this with all the humility and the grace in the world, but for some of us, you're just sitting on repeat in this position of being stuck with atrophied, anemic faith. And God through the ages says to you through the scriptures, if you would just draw near unto me, I'm already here, but you've got to make a move and you've got to clear some space and you've got to rearrange some priorities and you've got to say no to some things. And you've got to really kind of put in focus what is most important about your life. And if you're going to follow me, Come all in, trust in me, believe me, do what it takes to begin to develop that kind of faith. And here's what, as, as I get ready to conclude, here's what I want you to understand for those of you who've kind of been stuck and you've white knuckled this and you've tried to be more disciplined and why, why don't I feel like I have more faith? Here's what is so important to understand. Until you understand that Jesus is the object of your faith and not an outcome, you will never be able to develop your faith. And for some of you, because you never quite understood that the object of faith, it's a person. It is Jesus. Your faith is stuck. But the moment you begin to understand what Jesus came to reveal all throughout the scriptures, it's just Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the prize. That's the moment where your faith can begin to develop. And it's gonna develop differently in different seasons. We're gonna look at four habits 
that grow and mature your faith, but it's gonna look different every season because active faith looks different every season. What impacts the faith of a middle schooler looks different than what impacts the faith of a college student or a grad student. The faith of a newly married couple and how does that all together go together? Or the faith and what it requires in those seasons where maybe for the first time you're having kids or you are trying to have kids. Or how's your faith impacted where you're trying to hold on to faith simultaneously you're losing something. And how, how do you maintain faith where you wanna follow Jesus and you're looking at a culture where so many people claim to be followers of Jesus and they look nothing like Jesus? How do you hold on to faith then? It looks different in every season, but I'm telling you, Jesus' invitation to first century followers is the same invitation to us. And then I just wanna close with this for some of you. And there are so many of you investigating, as I said earlier, more than you would even imagine on radio, in the room, listening somewhere via podcast. But if you've begun to lose your faith in some ways, maybe you haven't lost it totally, but it just feels like it's slipping away. This series might explain some of the reasons. And it might give you handles in terms of how you can begin to come back. And here's where I wanna encourage you that maybe you didn't get when you grew up in your church or domination, because for some reason we get so scared of this and we shouldn't be. At some point along the way, everybody's faith has a bump. Some point along the way, everybody questions. At some point along the way, everybody has a crisis of faith or a dark night of the soul. You are not alone. You are not unique. And here's the other thing I would encourage you with. And I don't have any data around this. A lot of this is just anecdotal, but I've talked to a lot of people And in my experience, I'm sure they're out there, but I haven't met them. I've never met, I have never met anybody who walked away from faith because of Jesus. And so I don't know where you are, but sometimes it's encouraging to know that you're not alone. And in fact, every single one of Jesus' initial followers all deconstructed, all lost their faith and all came back. And Jesus is inviting you, if that's where you're at, to come back, that it is possible that you can regain that faith again. So if you're looking for faith, if you're looking to regain faith, if you're looking to mature and strengthen your faith, this series might be your invitation. Jesus would say to you as we close, the thing you gotta get straight is I, the resurrection and the life, I am the object of your faith. And if you wanna know God, you can't look any further than me, Jesus would say. And my goal for your life is not perfect obedience because you're never gonna achieve that. It's bold, courageous, death-defying. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm gonna trust you anyway in spite of kind of faith. And Jesus would say to you, it's possible. Follow me. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for what you're doing in this moment, and I pray that you would take this and you would contextualize this and personalize this to hundreds of people in the exact way that they need it. And I don't know how you do that, but you do it every single time. And so in this moment, I'm just asking under your authority, just do that. And I feel this so much because for so many of us, we have an intellectual understanding of Jesus, but we have been so discouraged in our faith And in some cases we've started to lose faith because we have the idea it just kind of doesn't work. And my prayer is that just for a bunch of people that you would awaken them to the reality of what you're inviting them into and that this is available to them. And that whatever they're chasing, whatever I'm chasing, that is in competition with you, that we would just let go and that we would make you the object of our faith 
that we would take whatever step you're inviting us to take over these next week, next weeks, and you would begin to grow trust and faith and confidence in who you are, not in a particular outcome, but in who you ultimately say you are and what you are willing and able to do in our life. And so God, do your thing. And in this moment, give us the wisdom to know what to do. Give us the courage to do it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.